Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in his mission to reach people with the gospel and then to equip his people to worship and serve. I'm Paul Joyner, the senior pastor, back with my regular conversation partner and friend, John Kelly. In our last season, we talked about a broad range of topics that churches were facing. This season, we're going to focus more on theological topics that are important foundations for the church. These will be theological topics that need to be deeply installed as bedrock truths for the followers of Jesus. We're going to start with a four-part series on the sovereignty of God. Reformed theology is uniquely God-centered. When people discover Reformed thought, the God-centered nature of it is often the thing that first strikes them. Even in our children's catechism, we start with the question, the very first question, why did God create humanity for his glory? For instance, we often talk about the Bible as one story, one story of God working all things towards the end of his glory in the person and work of Jesus. He is executing his plan, moving all history forward to it until it accomplishes this purpose. So, for instance, let me give an example in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish officials for preaching the gospel. And when they're released, the report comes back to their friends, and they, they account what had happened, and immediately they start to pray. And this is how they start their prayer. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. See, in the midst of their persecution, they default to this truth. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign Lord. And then they pray that the sovereign Lord and rejoice does whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. So what do we mean when we say sovereign? and talk about the sovereignty of God. Well, sovereign is a term that comes from the realm of a king. A king is a sovereign. A king rules and executes his decree or her decree. A queen would execute her plan. That is, that when a sovereign speaks and works his plan, that is a decree. And then he makes sure his plan or decree is accomplished. So, in our own confession of faith, The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1, says this, God, from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordains whatever comes to pass. And that is what we mean by the sovereignty of God. God the Creator accomplishing his purposes in the world according to his plan. So, John, let me ask you this question. Um, as we th- begin to think about these things, what what are some of the first order questions that come to mind for you? Um, for me, it's what does whatsoever mean? Um, because I don't think, I don't think it's difficult for, for me, I would say for, for most people who 
who believe in God to believe that he is in control and that he can affect things. But um, so this is where I, I get choked up is what does whatsoever mean? So when, when Peter and John were in prison, uh, was it, for instance, was it the understanding of the apostles that how they were treated in prison? Were they in chains? Were they, were they not in chains? These kind of details that I think we gravitate to, and maybe that's a, a modern mindset I'm speaking from, but, but it's almost those details that, that start to cause trouble or start to raise questions. Yeah, the the details of uh, um, someone is it the details or the actual events that are happening? Like this is evil being perpetrated on them, or is it like even to what degree is that evil being overseen by God? Maybe by details, I mean um, where. So it, it is is God playing chess and and acting either reactively or proactively with respect to human agents, or is this more of a a dic, like a determinism sort of sort of uh, environment? I guess. Yeah, that's a. Those are actually, I think, those are really good questions, and some of this we're going to put off to episode three when we talk or four when we talk specifically on the role of human agency um, and the sovereignty of God. But I think they're questions that will keep coming up. But the the question of you know of determinism is almost you know it has in such a negative connotation, like. God is just going to um, dictate to the world, and we're just robots without wills accomplishing, you know, whatever he he has in mind. And I think at this point, it's probably helpful to pull back and talk about um, what our standards, what the Westminster standards talk about, is the decree of God, and they're using language, particularly from the Old Testament, um, that you know God in His decree um, has has is executing a plan um and so our our theological standards will often talk about the the distinction between the decree of god or his plan and the execution of that decree Mm -hmm. um in providence um so for instance you know we can start with isaiah 46 uh, verses 8 through 10 and maybe even frame that part of the discussion and i want us to listen to the word counsel um here um, because in the context of the ancient Near East, the, the counsel of a king was his plan or design for his realm. And so um, God says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Now listen to this. Declaring the end of from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Right? So he's he's saying this is I, I am. There's no one like me who can actually speak into the world and it happen. And I am declaring the end from the beginning. Like I have the end in mind, and I'm going to speak it into existence. And he's doing so um, by the counsel 
of his will. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. And likewise, in Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel, the plans of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And so the end from the beginning and everything in between? And everything in between. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to to this, you know, kind of the details of that, um, and we'll and when we talk about his providence, um, and we'll talk about you know things um, from small to great. Um, but you know, he uh, Paul picks up the same thing in Ephesians chapter one, the same kind of idea that God is is in history executing his counsel or his plans when he says this in Him in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? So the, the, here, the counsel of his will indicates that God is, is taking input from his desires. He's executing his plans. Right? It's a it's an inward focus. It's a it's a glimpse into God's nature and His plans that are driving His purposes in the world. Um, he's not taking input from the creature or creation and then deriving His plan. Rather, His plan is derived from His own nature and His own desires. It's internally derived. Yeah, that, that's important um, to understand because. A lot of the questions and difficulties, I think, come from starting with ourselves and with humanity first, yeah. and then trying to trying to work work from there to God to God being sovereign. Um, and so, I, I appreciate the distinction between decrees and providence, um, but and I also appreciate the distinction between doctrine. In application, because if we if we focus first on the doctrine and get that settled, as you said, install it, then we can we can work from there as a base, um, not starting with not starting with the requirement that we must remain free agents. Yeah. And then, you know, God can be sovereign, whatever that means, as long as we're still free yes. or, or or whatever. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is one of the reasons we started with, you know, Reformed theology is distinctly God-centered, because that's its starting, mm-hmm. that's our starting, it should be our starting point with all things. Um, not, you know, not what, even when we talk about our salvation, um, you know, the, the first thing we sh- that um, we want to go to is, what benefit do I get from it? Mm-hmm. When the, when the thing that the Bible talks about the most is what glory God receives from what he has done executing his plan in Christ. Um, and therefore, you know, what benefits do we receive becomes a secondary thing because God is glorified by um, saving sinners. Um, and, and this is where Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 1, um, that God is in the counsel of his will in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He, um, And we'll talk a lot about this, um, this question of human agency and the sovereignty of God will keep coming up. 
And there have been a lot of, I think, bad solutions to the problem. Um, but um, one of the things that the the Bible just insists on, even amidst all the problems that it and questions that it might raise for us, the presence of questions around the sovereignty of God um, shouldn't be an opportunity to eliminate the truth that is so clearly taught in Scripture, um, but should just maybe even highlight um, the creature-creator distinction mm-hmm. that this is asserted and revealed to us in God and from God in His Word, and therefore should belie- be believed, and that we can't get our hands around and our heads and hearts around all aspects of it, so it's neatly tied up in a bow, yeah. asserts the sovereignty of God. Yeah. So if we could, if we could fully digest it and understand it, and um, make sense of it, then. That that would not be the state of affairs that that we affirm, right? Yeah. If we could get our heads and hearts fully around it and tie it up in a bow, we probably made it up. It wasn't revealed from God and His Word. Well, so to draw some some boundaries or maybe set expectations of of how we ought to go away from, um, or how how we ought to behave once we install these truths or what our expectations ought to be. So should we expect that we have a full understanding of this? Um, uh, once we understand, let's say once we understand the scriptures rightly, once we uh, have adopted what the confession says, all the rest, and we, we fully digested that and installed it. Uh, should we expect a high degree of certainty um, so, and I think this is one of the reasons that the Bible really spends, that God in his word has revealed um, what what Moses calls in Deuteronomy um, 29, he calls the secret things of the Lord. Like, um, this is what, what has God decreed? What are his plans? Um, and Moses is like, you know what, some of that you just don't know. Um some of it is hidden and secret. But here's what we do know. God has a plan, and his plans can't be thwarted. So Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. His, his plans, whatever he is executing in the world, he's executing it according to a plan. It's not capricious. It's not random. He has determined the end from the beginning, and he is accomplishing what he um, wants in the world according to that plan. Um, and so Isaiah 14, 26 and 27, this is the purpose that is purposed according to the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed it, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Like his plans cannot be stopped. Um, and so the certainty that the Bible wants to give us around the sovereignty of God is that he has a plan, it can't be stopped, and it's mo- always moving forward to his intended purposes, um, and that he is working out that plan according to his providence. And so 
Um, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 8, asks, How does God execute his decrees? And the answer is, in creation and providence. Right? He's, how, does God, how does God carry out his plan? Well, he carries out his plan in his initial work of creation. He created the world. That was his initial execution of his decrees. And so in his mind, he had a plan. That plan started to be carried out when he made the world according to his design and purposes. And so um, the world is very purposefully designed um, by God to accomplish his glory in it. And so his initial work of executing his decree was in creation. And then providence he works out his plans in the world he was created. He created, and so um, you know the the uh, deism, the teaching of deism, sort of embraces God's executing His decree in prov- in creation, creation, yeah, and then says, you know, what He did is He built in all of these natural laws into the world, and then just kind of let it go. And so oftentimes in deism, it uses the watchmaker. Uh, God created the world like a watchmaker makes a watch. He wound it up um, and built in the laws of physics and natural laws, um, and then he just kind of let it go. And now he's not really involved in his world. Um, And and the the Westminster Standards, riffing off of the Bible— because they're doing good biblical theology, says, no, God executes his decrees not just in creation, but in providence. Um, And so Shorter Catechism 11 says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And so his works of providence are keeping the world in order and executing his decree so there's this there's this intimate involvement um in the world and this is where we're going to go from small to great right and so there's small things um that god in his providence is involved in for instance matthew 29 not a bird falls to the ground apart from my father's will right the the father is causing even the smallest of the birds um to fall to the to the ground and maybe even to get back to your question um, about um, the apostles um, experiencing persecution, being bound up in chains, put in prison. This is the context in which Jesus brings the doctrine of God's providence and the smallest bird falling to the ground. He's talking about persecution in, in Matthew chapter 10. And he's bringing in this truth um, to assure them that whatever they're going through in the midst of, of um, persecution is ordered by the hand of God. He makes the smallest bird fall from the ground. So he's he's arguing from from lesser to greater. Yeah, yeah he's arguing from lesser to greater. Um, and I think we can we commit a fallacy here if we if we say if we don't understand if we can't make sense of all of the lesser things, then the greater thing can't be true. So if we if we don't understand all the details of how about the bird situation. Um, therefore, God isn't in control. Um, yes. Well, I think you can actually employ just what you just said, um, is, um, gosh, I didn't think about all the details 
that would be involved in a bird falling from the ground. If you just even begin to think about what needs to fail for a bird to fall to the ground or what needs to happen for a bird to fly, you think, wow, those are the details involved in that small act are so immense. And if it's my father's will that's doing even keeping a bird in flight, then whatever details that are now surrounding my trials or difficulties or if I'm facing persecution are all being accomplished by the same sovereign Lord um, who's upholding the world by the word of his power and accomplishing all things according to the um, design and counsel of his will. And so it brings a, I think it brings a great deal of, of confidence and hope into the midst of suffering and trials and even persecution. Um, and that's why Jesus is talking about it there in Matthew 10. He's like, God cares about that. That thing that you didn't even think about, that bird that fell to the ground, fell to the ground because of the Father's will. So if we were going to map that onto the the uh, sort of catechism, creation and providence here. So Jesus is referencing providence specifically. Yes. With a backdrop of creation. Decree. Yes. Decree and creation. Yes. No, with the backdrop of, of his decree in general, right? This is the Father's will. Right? He's accomplishing all things according to his plan. And that plan even involves, um, the will of God even involves the smallest thing like a bird falling to the ground. There's no detail of anything that's happened in this world that's that's random, but is all God executing, the sovereign Lord executing um, his decree. So let's let's go to the story of Joseph, okay, and his brothers. Okay, so that's always been one of my favorite in terms of of uh, God's providence. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Mm. Which is directly referencing providence, right? And then the backdrop of all that, the need for food. Yes, I mean that's that's coming from. God executing his decree through creation. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to talk about this is, you know, the this uh, there's two great events that often um uh when we talk about the sovereignty of God and human agency and the God executing his plan, there's the the Joseph event and um and the way Israel gets to Egypt um and then the cross event. Um and they're um and and then Peter's interpretation of it in Acts chapter two, mm-hmm. um, both kind of uh, highlighting the same thing. Look at all of these things and all of the evil that were being perpetrated at the time. God used it for good, and and when we have that discussion, we're going to talk about the doctrine of concurrence mm-hmm. um, and how these things work together. Um, that there, you have two two actors doing two things according to their designs and um, how that one can be accomplishing his good while the other um, is accomplishing um, their evil. Um, and yet it's the sovereign plan of the Lord that always wins out and, uh, and always works towards the end um, of good. And so, you know, so you can go from small 
to not a hair falls from your head with the fa- without God knowing it. Not a bird falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. Why do you look at me when you hair falling from your head? <laughs> well, because you're shedding on my desk. <laughs> um, and then, but then, you know, Acts, Acts chapter 16, so you go from small to large. Um, and uh, in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 26, um, you know, Paul is here um, in Athens, um, and he's um, engaging with um, the um, the unbelievers in Athens. He's doing the work of evangelism, and, and, and this is where he starts. The God who made the world and everything in it, mm-hmm. being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he starts with God's independence. He's the king. He's the sovereign. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't... He doesn't simply take his input from creation but lives independently of it, and he's executing his plan, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all places of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, the nation's dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they would find their way towards him. Right. So even the, the rise and fall of nations are mm-hmm. determined by God. When Rome fell, it was determined by God. He said, according to my plan, this has this particular nation has reached its boundary. It will not go any further, and it will fall when I dictate that it, it falls. And so you, you even see this in, um, in uh, the prophecies of the latter part of Daniel um, and the visions that Daniel receives where you know four nations are going to rise up and fall in succession of each other, um, and and then that actually happens. That's a trajectory forward into world's history, where God says, um, you know, um, Babylon's going to rise and fall, and that's bad news um, for the Babylonian kingdom who's receiving that. But then after them is going to come another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then that fourth kingdom. When that fourth kingdom um, arises. Um, then my kingdom will come forward. And so um, the rise and fall of nations are not just foreseen by God, but as something that will happen, but decreed by God and therefore do happen. And that's that's a, a major distinction in in the Christian faith, right? Between does God unilaterally decree... Or does he foresee and then solidify, make those things concrete, um, which is not really a decree at all, right? No, it's it's not. And um, uh, in later episodes, we'll keep coming back to this, but that is an attempt to solve a problem that is no solution to the problem um, of human agency and the sovereignty of God. Um, is that where that came from? Yes. That explanation of... Well, when it says predestined, it means God saw what I was going to do and yeah. then determined it. I, I think it's a uh, in my in my view, in my opinion, um, it is an attempt to soften the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And so it's like because all of these questions arise from it, and it does um, it does seem like our, I think in our naturally in our hearts we begin to feel little. In light of God's sovereignty, we don't like to feel little, and so we want to raise ourselves up again. 
And part of uh, why God is revealing his sovereignty is to make us feel little, to make us feel our creatureliness and that he is the only sovereign and it's his plans that are being accomplished. And, um, you know, at, at times that feels, you know, the emotions that kind of come around it, what our hearts do around it is that feels very threatening and it, it makes us feel small. And that's okay. It's significant. It's actually better than okay. It's good news, right? Because um, the one thing, um, as I approach 50, um, the one thing that I am sure of is that most of my plans and designs um, are just full of rot and foolishness. Uh, most of the things that I've set out to plan and accomplish in this world um, have all kinds of unintended consequences, and most of them are bad. Um, and um, and I haven't thought through it. It's a it's the old Donald Rumsfeld's. You know, the thing I'm afraid of is the unknown unknowns, and there are no unknown unknowns in the decrees of God. Yeah, why wouldn't God listen to us? I mean, if our if our best thinking got us here, <laughs> look what we've done to ourselves. Right? And I and I again want to you know what first my first reaction is God does listen to us, um, and He does um, He does you know make adjustments in His decree. Um, there's interaction, or He makes adjustment in His providence, but not in His decree. He is always going to accomplish what he intends to accomplish, but in his providence, he is, he makes slight adjustments along the way um, for that. And so oftentimes, particularly in the prophets, who knows? Who knows? Or David, when he's told that his son will die, he, he enters into a time of fasting. Right? It's God's, God has said, this is going to happen as punishment for your sin. And he's like, well, who knows? Well, when you say he makes, he makes adjustments... Is to, this to his providence? To his providence, not to his decree. Okay. It is. Does that give some explanation to some of the episodes we see with Moses? Yes. Um, it, yeah, that's an interest, and I think that. So, you're, are you thinking of I'm thinking of when God says, you know, to Moses, um, I'm, "We just did this." I'm getting ready, y'all. Yeah, and then, and then a chapter later, he restores him or, or says, "I will be your God." Yes. Yeah, and this is good. You know, you're 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 looping in our our seeing Jesus together journal reading um, because this is you know when we did this in Exodus, um, when we did our time in Exodus, this is, it happens uh, at least twice where God says, "I'm done with these people," and then Moses intercedes, mm-hmm. and um, and then God you know saves his people. He comes back to them and keeps his covenant, and. When that plays itself out, if that's all you have in the story, um, then you have a you you can come to some un, unfortunate conclusions. But when you play that out into the entire um, story of God executing His decrees in His work of providence, what you see is that God is illustrating for His people how a mediator in His economy mm-hmm. is going to work. Because he's ultimately taking all this story forward to when his own son would be the mediator who stood in his heavenly place according to his own design and interceded for his people. And so if all you have is that isolated story of Moses without being part of the whole story of the Bible, 
then you can be, come to some weird conclusions about um, God's providence. But then when you read it in the whole thing, you're like, oh, God used that little episode to communicate a greater truth of what he would eventually do in the fullness of time when his when his the 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 counsel of his wills were not thwarted even by the Romans and the Jews who executed his son according to his plan and and counsel of his will. And so that little piece back here in the story is part of one story that God has written. In the mind of the author, he had the story played out before he even began his works of providence. So in his works of providence, he's accomplishing greater purposes. So this yeah, then illustrates a, a misstep that can be made when interpreting the scriptures. If we look at, as you just said, a single episode and not let scripture, the full, the full story of redemption, inter- interpret itself. If we don't let scripture interpret itself, then we come, come with contradictory explanations for things or for events. Yes. That are recorded. Yeah, that's right. Uh huh. Yeah, you fail. You know, and again, I think there is this tendency in our hearts to immediately jump to, um, well, what about me? What about my plans? I don't do that. What about my desires? It must be. You. <laughs> it's it's. There are a lot of things wrong with me, so that would not surprise me. Um, but you know the sort of like God keeps asserting this. And when we get to our next episode and talk about the problem of evil, because that's often, I think the other question that comes up, you know, for people who've experienced pure evil in their lives, um, what about that? Um, And that's a, that's a big issue. Um, It needs to be dealt with. Um, But um, God's answer to that is often um, his sovereignty. Yeah, when Jesus goes from the lesser to the greater here, he's saying even these small things, yeah. God cares about how much more will he care about you? About you, yeah. or how much more is he in control? When we argue from the lesser to the greater, we say this thing didn't work out pain-free yeah. or, or to the outcome that I think a good God would allow or, or um, determine. Yeah. Therefore, you know, God's sovereignty that can't be true. That's a great point. That yeah, that we're always arguing the lesser to the greater, but but we start um, with um, we start with circumstances and then extrapolate yep. out. Where God starts with His decree and extrapolates out. He starts with His sovereignty and extrapolates out. Like if I care about this thing, how much more then do I care about you? I think that's why we have to start here. We have, this is, has to be the bedrock. We say, okay, do we agree here? Yes. Okay. Now we're going to move forward. We're not going to let anything that happens with the circumstantial stuff overturn yes. this. Yes. This bedrock, this doctrine of of, of providence. Yes. Um, and I, you know, so, and again, you know, this just is the way Jesus argues in Matthew um, chapter five, um, and he he's arguing from the sovereignty of God to loving your enemies, and he says, "Look, God even makes since you he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." And then his his reasoning for that is in God's sovereignty, he makes the sun rise. So he's making the sun rise. Why does the sun come up every day? Not because God created the world, wound it up, and set it in its place, but He makes the sun rise. Um, in on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
in his works of providence, he's even involved with making the sun rise every single morning and making the the rain fall. And um, and and Jesus is arguing here. He's saying, "Do you see how good God is? Like He even gives this good gift of the sun rising in the morning and the and the rain falling, and He gives that good gift every single time it happens. God is actively involved." sending that and he's so good that he does it to the evil and the unjust too not just his people um and so you know he's involved and so you know this is this is uh and paul takes all of this kind of wraps it up in romans eight twenty eight, and he says for we know that all things are for those who love god all things work together for good Right and and specifically the the Greek construct here is um, is having you know good almost intended plan right it's whatever is happening is not just for their good but it's towards the end of good whatever is happening is happening for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so he's he's saying all things are working towards the end of good. And then he take almost takes a case study in the salvation of his people and say, look, he's he's executed his decrees and your salvation, and so you know where all of history is going, because look look at what the good he's done in Christ for his people. He called them. He justified them. Um, he uh, he predestined them, and he's also glorified them. He's he's always accomplishing good for his people, and so whatever questions might arise for you, you can know this: whatever God has done is always arose out of His nature, according to His plan. And since God is holy and just and righteous and is love, you know that whatever he does is good because he's not taking his cues from anything but his own nature. You know, that's one of the things I appreciate about um, our liturgy here at Zion, how every week, I think we do this every week, this, this phrase is said every week, take your eyes off of your sin, mm-hmm. look to Jesus. Um, or, you know, our criteria for for our music, what is it? It's Christ-centered, yeah. Theologically sound, was mm-hmm. sung in one voice. Was yeah. that the third one? Yep. Okay, yeah. So it's not the band, but the people. That's the primary voice. Yeah. So how much? I, I, I really detest modern Christian radio, and most of that is because it's. I mean, it's. I don't need any more help focusing on me. Mm. I do that pretty well, and and. That's a lot of what music is. So, I, I don't know where I was going with that. But that happens sometimes. <laughs> that was just a freebie. That was a freebie. You just had to get that off your chest. Zion plus plus. <laughs> we threw that one in. It's just a, a free one. Maybe that's be a. Maybe we'll get John to rant on on uh, modern worship music at a later episode. Maybe. So I, I think, you know, it's kind of maybe, you know, good to kind of, you know, wrap some of this up with, with some application. 
Um, and, and one of the ways that I, I think often um, I'll go to um, is to talk about how important the doctrine of um, God's sovereignty in all matters um, or his providence over creation, how important that is to things that are very practical like science, right? Because you think about the scientific world, there it, it's built on these assumptions. It's built on that the fact that someone created the world and is governing the world and is doing so consistently according to his own his own nature because it assumes science is built on the assumption that the world is predictable and consistent. Right? And so underneath that, if if the world's not predictable and consistent, then there, the, the entire scientific endeavor falls apart because the scientific endeavor is based on we can observe things, we can create a hypothesis around our observations, and then we can extrapolate that out into the future. And that and all, in all of those things, I'm assuming that what I once observed will continue to happen. Therefore, I can create a hypothesis mm-hmm. around it. And then I can apply that into the future and assuming it will always consistently happen this way, that there's an orderliness um, to the world. Yeah, the, so it, it's, very, it's very sad that... Um, you know, in, in science today, a lot of times you'll hear this uh, methodological naturalism is the phrase, right? So we, we can't invoke any supernatural agency. We can't um, look to anything beyond nature and natural laws, you know, quote nature, um, a, as an explanation. So there, there's the interesting quote that would be the antithesis to this. Uh, Richard Dawkins said that, you know, at at the bottom, there is no purpose. There's no, there's no plan. It's just blind, pitiless indifference. Yeah, uh, which is very hopeful, but but that is the antithesis to a God that created an orderly world mm-hmm. and sustains that orderly world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and basically, you know, like in science, um, science is assuming. Um, it will never, you know, it doesn't say this. This is why, um, but it's assuming that what God promised in his covenant with Noah will happen because what God promised is seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. He's, he's, I have to remind myself of that sometimes. <laughs> Last year, the weather we've had here is like, okay, we're going to have seasons. God promised we're going to have seasons. Especially after, I always think this in January and February, I'm like, we're almost done with winter. God promised that springtime and harvest will yeah. come. Um, but, you know, what he's promising is that after the flood, I will continue to keep the world a very orderable play, ordered place. I will rule over it in such a way that you can kind of go about living life without having to wonder. Will seed time and harvest come? Will the rains happen? Will th-? He's like, yeah, I'm going to keep it in an ordered place so that humanity can inhabit it. And do so in a way that leads to increasing productivity and um, then carry out the mandate to subdue creation, which is all that science is. Mm. Science is just an attempt to subdue creation, to make it more profitable, um, and or medicine, whatever form of that is, um, so that we can take raw materials, assume that the world is going to remain orderly, 
and improve on those raw materials so that we can have something better out of it as a result. And so we've had tremendous advances in science and technology and uh, medicine as a result of that. Um, and, you know, and then both Paul in Colossians 1 and the writer of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus um, holds all things together and upholds the world according to his power. So he's not a detached king, but sitting on his throne is making sure that the world continues to operate in, an, in a very orderly way. He's he's ruling over all things as the sovereign. Um, and so, you know, if you think about this, like if, if these things aren't true, then you just have a very chaotic um, world. And so, um, you know, the science, science assumes these things by faith. They don't prove them. Um, they assume them to make their proofs. Um, and, um, and yet, so the Bible's coming back and saying, they can do that because God's ruling over all things according to his providence. That's where science came from. That's, well, yes, that's, that's right. Um, um, and I think another application of this uh, is to think and now maybe s- to switch from the world of science to the switch to moral order and think even justice assumes um, that um, there's this is a moral universe. And in order for it to be a moral universe, it has to be consistently ruled over and kept in order. Um, otherwise, I can't assume that there is a morality that is above and beyond whatever situation I'm in, right? And so if if the world's not orderly, then you can't have morality. Um, all you can have is situational ethics. You can't have mm-hmm. an overarching morality. And if you can't have an overarching morality, then you can never get to the question of justice. Um, and so, you know, Martin Luther King famously said um, in a speech in 1964 that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. Um, and, uh, you know, so that you can you can kind of bring in this hope that that God, the God who is just will bring about justice in this world. And therefore, we can pursue justice in, you know, our legal system or in questions of ethics um, it may not come immediately, but we know that there is a God who is just, who is ruling over all things. And again, the great example of this is look what he did in his, in, at the cross. In the fullness of time, and we, when history itself had reached its climax, God brought forth um, his son uh, being born of a woman so that his son could bear the penalty for the sins of his people. And God did that according to his plan and foreknowledge. Um, and uh, that's Acts, Peter in Acts chapter 2. So you know that this is an orderly world where God is bending things towards justice. And so we can pursue things like justice. We can call things wrong and evil, um, even though we might be deceived in moments in thinking this is not evil, God will eventually eradicate it and bring it towards the end of evil. And it may be long, as MLK um, wisely said, it may be long. You know, you might not see this in a generation or, or two, but eventually God will bring about his purposes. Um, and so it's not capricious and random, um, but 
there's even, you know, you can bring into that, there's even meaning in suffering. And we'll, we'll look at that later. Um, and I think another place where... I have one thing to say about that. So yeah. this just reminds me of the second paragraph or, or uh, second uh, statement that you said about suffering. The why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a so Christopher Hitchens, yeah, very famous um, atheist, I guess you'd say. But he he wrote an essay when he was diagnosed with you know, terminal cancer, and he, I think it was I think it was titled "Death." Mm-hmm. But in that, he said that he when he he found himself asking that question, which he was generally opposed to, the why is this happening to me? But he said the response that he heard in his head was, why not? Mm. And mm. which is, you know, indicative of, of the despair that comes from from thinking the universe is that way. Yeah. But um, something else that he said in that essay was that, of course, he wasn't a believer, he said, but if he believed in a God who was the creator, sustainer, etc., as the Christians describe God, that he would have, he wouldn't think that he demanded an answer to suffering. He said, I would have enough respect. <laughs> I do remember this, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. Uh, to not ask these questions and not demand an answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, a couple things on that, you know, the, we are we are meaning makers. Like we, we assume that there is an interpretation to our experiences and we try to make meaning out of our experiences. And, and what we're assuming is that there is a, in, in trying to make meaning, we're assuming this world's not random and capricious. Mm -hmm. Therefore I can attempt to interpret what's going on and try to find a sense of purpose behind it. And, and the reason I'm doing that is because even though I may not like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, I'm always defaulting to it. There's somebody ordering this world. Therefore, I can make meaning and, and assume that there's meaning to something. I may come to the wrong conclusions about what that meaning is, but I am at least assuming that there's meaning here, which means someone is executing his design and plans. And now I can ask the question, what does this mean? Because I'm really asking, and to, to and this is where I'd push back against Hitchens' point, is to demand an answer is one thing, but God gives us the permission and even the words to ask the questions. Mm. I, and see, so saying, because I'm sovereign and you're the creature, don't just live like you're unimportant, but as a meaning maker and someone who's trying to live by interpreting the world, ask me the questions. And he, and he in fact oftentimes gives us language for that. Um, and I think it's we'll do this next episode when we talk about the problem of suffering. But the first book that was written in the Bible was meant to address the sovereignty of God and the problem of evil. Job. Job. That's right. And, and God's not only saying this is probably the most foundational question you ask um, as a creature living in a fallen world, but... Um, so he gives us the book, but he also gives us a framework for asking the questions and also not demanding the answer, all of the answers um, to be wrapped up. But I think one last part of this is um, is 
in terms of application is um, is when we pray, we are again assuming the sovereignty of God. Um, because if if God's not sovereign over all things, even the smallest details, and if He's not executing His plan, His plan according to His internal counsel, why pray? Um, why not just not mm-hmm. pray and just kind of go on with it? Right? And this is interestingly, um, he's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. And, and interestingly, um, uh, Islam has a very strong. Um, doctrine of God's providence, and what it leads to is just that conclusion. God's going to do what he's going to do, right? And so there's very little warmth in our interaction um, as a result, and there's a variety of reasons for that in Islam, mostly because it's it's a work performance-based religion, as is every single one except the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as a result, you know, uh, in Islam or Buddhism, it's simply a resigning to, mm. um, and yet yeah. that's not the the relationship that the sovereign Lord who's revealed in God's word and in the person of Jesus gives us. Because I'm sovereign, pray. And so when Jesus even starts the Lord's Prayer, that model prayer with a call to remembrance, our Father who art in heaven. And that, that, that word, the, the language of heaven throughout the Bible, in the context in which the original hearers were hearing it, was not, um, you know, the place up there where you go when you die, but the place, um, heaven was the place of God's throne room, of his heavenly council, where he is seated um, in, uh, in all creation is being worked out according to this king's sovereign decree. So he's saying, our Father who art in heaven, you're the sovereign one who rules over all things. It's a reminder that there is one who sits on the throne and is working all things according to the counsel of his will, um, and, and, but he's our Father. And there's, that's the one who's ruling all things according to his purposes. And so approach him and ask him for the things that you need and to move, because as, as we'll say, even in evangelism, God has not just ordered the ends, but he's order, also ordained the means. Mm-hmm. And when one of those means is, approach me and ask the questions. I'll even give you the language to do that with. Um, approach me and, and lament, um, and approach me and ask. So time travel is possible? Uh <laughs> Uh, I don't know. We'll have to take that up at a different time. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, so this is when Jesus gives us those that language, it's like our Father who art in heaven. Okay, now turn into that petitions. I can, I can ask the one who's ruling to give me my daily bread and to forgive my sins um, and to deliver me from the evil one because there is one who's seated on his thrones and his plans can't be stopped. He's ordering all things from the smallest to the to the greatest, and I have access to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, um, who not only has shed his blood to take away my sins, but sits at the right hand of God interceding for me, so I can approach with boldness and confidence and say, you're the one who's ruling. Will you give me my daily bread? You're the one who's ruling. Will you deliver me from the evil one? You're the one who's ruling. Will you provide for me? You're the one who's ruling. Will you... 
Um, will you remind me, will you overcome the evil um, temptations that I'm facing because you rule and no one can thwart your plans? Will you come to my rescue? And so often, yeah, I even often pray. Uh, I've sort of, I'm finding sometimes as I get older, my prayers are becoming a lot more um, succinct. Um, and oftentimes it's just help or fight my battles, win my wars. Um, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what I'm asking for, but I, I'm just I'm coming to you because you're the sovereign one who can do something about this, and I can't. Um, and I really want you to accomplish your good purposes instead of my agenda. And so just sometimes it's, Lord, this is too heavy. Will you help? Lord, this is, I don't know what to do right now. Will you give me wisdom? Lord, I, um, I'm not sh- quite sure how I'm going to get through this, so give me our daily bread. Um, But it's just, you know, even prayer is built on the assumption that there's one who's ruling and no one can stop his hand. He's going to do what he wants to do, and what he wants to do is always good, and he's always taking his cues from his internal counsel of his will. Look forward to to, uh, application, because that's... It's hard to understand. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, is it hard to, let me ask you this. Is it hard to understand or is it hard to comprehend? Comprehensive, comprehend is I've got it all down and I've got no questions left. Okay. That's a great distinction. Um, often these truths are not hard to understand. Yeah. Um, but they feel impossible to comprehend. And so I, when you say um, pray, okay, so here's here's what would f- sit really nicely with um, my humanity. Pray because I'll listen to you and do what you say. I mean, that's that's the, the God we can control, right? But when you say pray because I am sovereign, and I have ordained the means, then that that gets me in a a loop mm-hmm. mentally, like a cause and effect sort of loop. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it's difficult to comprehend. Mm-hmm. And I think in those, that's why it made the distinction because it seems to be a simple truth mm-hmm. that causes more questions to arise. Than answers to be solved, and that's at times not in all times, but that's that's at times when you have a simple truth mm-hmm. that that causes our heads to start spinning. Is when you say, "I think I've touched on something holy that is distinctly other, and it has, must have been revealed from the Lord." Because I know His Word that's says right. this. We can't exit the loop because. It doesn't sit well with us rationally. That that doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. So we have to. That has to be an acceptable outcome. Yes. Yes. And uh, you know, again, um, I think the longer um, I've walked with Jesus, the more I've realized that there is incredible profundity in both relationship and wisdom, in letting some of those 
tension sit mm-hmm. in my own heart. The longer they sit, the more the gospel becomes profound, the more God becomes more beautiful and believable, um, and the more I am okay with being the creature and him being the creator. It's just, um, it's, I'm happier with that. <laughs> so we've, we've proven that's the best situation. Yeah. <laughs> that we're the creature and not the one in control. Yes. And, um, and, I, and I, you know, I think um, I was talking to, to one of our saints um, after uh, worship the other day, and I'd, I'd made the point in the sermon that, you know, in your in your twenties and thirties, you think um, I, I'm going to be able to get this life right, um, and you know, so you're just full of hope, and then in your you know fifties and sixties, you realize I've gotten so much wrong, um, and so you kind of are in a state of you know bewildering and despair. And then he said, he came up to me afterwards and he said, you left the seventies and eighties out. (laughs) Um, And I was like, I did that on purpose because y'all are just looking forward going, you know, I'm almost to the end. God's going to, God has kept his promises to me. I said, you guys are just full of hope um, because there's a sense of which this is all coming to an end soon. And I'm going to be with Jesus forever and ever. Um, And I, I think that hopefully he took that the right way. Oh yeah, he was like he had a giant smile on his face. He's like, "Yeah, you're right." Um, and uh, there's that there is that sense of trajectory. I think the longer um, I've walked with Jesus, the more I've been thankful that my plans don't overcome yeah. His plans. Yeah. Um, because again, so many of the things that I've asked for, and He has not done. The longer I, you know, I've I've tried to live my life in this world. I'm like, oh man, I'm glad he didn't give me what I asked for, mm-hmm. or I'm I'm glad he didn't do what I asked him to do. Because if he would have done that, it would have derailed some some things that I needed to suffer through and gain from. Um, it would have been it would have created more problems for me if he would have done what I asked him to do in that moment. Um, that there are treasures to be gained in the midst of suffering that I would not have mined if he would have delivered me when I asked him to deliver me from. I'm so glad he accomplished what he thought was good rather than me accomplishing what, what I thought was good. And I think as I've, you know, I think we'll come back to this metaphor a lot, but I think in, in you know, the longer I've parented, the more I've, I've appreciated um, the, the father's, executing of his plans rather than um, falling to my dictates um, and doing what I want. And also um, the doctrine of concurrence, that he can allow um, evil things to happen and still accomplish his good. And I think that's just so apparent in parenting sometimes um, that you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to let my kid do something tolerated sin i'm gonna i'm gonna tolerate it or maybe even i mean maybe even gonna let them pursue that thing because there's something that they need to gain like what i'm intending for them and what they're intending are two very different things 
And so I'm planning the whole time, and that plan includes letting them do the very thing that they should not be doing so that together we can see something greater accomplished. Um, and that, that greater accomplishment is for their good, um, even though they may not have intended for it to be happened. So there's a plan that's being executed. And I think every parent does that. Every business owner, every just, leader does that. I yell that. at my kids, I'm the creator, you're the creation. <laughs> that seems to work. Yeah, I bet that does. <laughs> I bet that does. So another side of the, um, about our purposes and, and those not being um, God's purposes and working out differently. So, yeah, we can look back and say that that worked out differently for me. And the other side of that coin, or maybe the more important side, is that that wouldn't have brought much glory to God. Yes. You know, that outcome. Yeah. Yes. It would have brought, yes. It wouldn't have. I thought it would have. Yeah. Um, what I really wanted was, you know, just to be relieved or given what I wanted, but it would not have brought much glory to God, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will for the end of his glory, which is also for our good. Because the more God is glorified um, um, and magnified, the greater um, joy and satisfaction his creatures have. These are not mutually exclusive Mm. things, um, for it's either God and his glory or our good, um, but that our 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 greatest good is to see God's glory magnified, um, and the more that happens, the more His people um, rejoice and have peace and experience joy, and we will see this, um, particularly um, at towards the end of Job, next episode when we take up the problem of evil. Well, you've been listening to for the church a conversation with Paul Joyner and John Kelly. If you have ideas for future episodes, please send us an email or message. You can find out more about Zion Church at zioncolumbia.org and please visit us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 for worship.